given money to homeless people, right? Like most people have at some point, like, is that the best use of funds? Not necessarily. Does it help someone? Yes. So it's fine to do. Does it? Uh, I don't know if it does. Hey, everybody. So today on the podcast, I've got a little bit of a blast from the past. He certainly blasted. Uh, and he's in the realm of rockets blasting off, I guess. So he won over 18 million from live MTTs. And he's won who knows how much more in cash games as well. He did a bit of both. And he co-founded Reg with Livbori, which is Rational Effective Giving. Along with uh, Philip Grusom, I believe, but I believe you guys were, weren't you guys the first two original founders? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it started with uh, Phil and me doing uh, just uh, like a matching challenge where we were raising during Bahamas 2014 for two organizations and we said, hey, we'll we'll, uh, double it. Before we get into that, I just want to like throw out because people like to know like a little bit more about why we should all listen to you. I mean, you were in control of, uh, you raised in the first two years $1.5 million and got the uh, the attention of some really big names. Eventually, Elon Musk himself uh, and potentially had the capacity to shift, you know, billions of dollars, um, you know, towards positive causes. Uh, and also, um, I do want to refer, I thought I was referring to you and Liv I'd like to hear the story in a second of how this mm-hmm. happened because it really is a big thing. A lot of poker players did donate, and I also considered supporting it myself, although I understood you guys. It's a bit more of the story, but why don't you tell the story again with uh, you and Philip? And uh, was it you two or was it Liv that actually created this thing? So we all came together. There was also a fourth person, Stefan Huber, who kind of initially introduced me to the now often hated effect of altruism, <laughs> which has really? uh, in- initially informed my philanthropic thinking quite a bit. Anyhow, so Phil and I wanted to do a matching challenge because we got into philanthropy in early 2014 during Bahamas. And we yeah. wrote out a post, but our uh, English wasn't that great at the time and may still not be as good as of others, obviously. But so we asked Liv to help translate it from our German English into proper British English. And as she was uh, translating it or rather improving, she got curious about what this thing is that we're raising for and immediately got involved. So she was there from the beginning, but not for the initial matching challenge. She's she's about like the, the whole prospect of it all. And certainly it sounds really appealing to myself because a lot of giving is in fact irrational if you get to the core of it you can see irrational sides of it. I want to talk a lot about that because I personally was led in certain directions for where I went with, with rationally applying stuff in it. Um, but it is a bit of a complicated debate of like where I think it's often complicated, but I have my own beliefs of what mm-hmm. where's rational to give money to and depends on how you look at a lot of things. I believe it can be solved. I really do. Mm-hmm. Um, even though my usually my intuitions write about these things, but I'm not that educated on it. I, it turns out that charity and giving actually is really complicated, and creating positive impact by itself tends to be complicated. There's yeah. lots of um, there's lots of uh, heuristics for it, just like there are in poker. But I want to go back to the origins of all this. How did you decide to go for making mil- millions in poker? 
to working on giving your money away and not making much money, presumably not as much money as you would if you just focused on poker. How do you like make this shift in in uh, where you put your efforts and your, mm-hmm. your value and your time from like enjoying your life, presumably in the more uh, common sense kind of way, you know, like mm-hmm. you get money and do whatever you want, to I'm going to put my effort into something as complicated as effective giving. Uh, yeah, I really I, want to know how that all started. Yeah, I want to quickly just comment on the rational part as well that you mentioned. I, I'm a bit more careful with the word. I think uh, people can give for many reasons. And uh, one of them is to fill some um, inner preference one has or because they want to feel good or because they want to help um, oh, yeah. avoid the issue in the world that their parents may be suffered by. I think it's not irrational to do that. It's just that... If it was the case that the giving that one aims to do has the goal of helping most people per dollar spend, then I think those things apply of uh, let's be quantified about it, let's use the scientific method, etc. And then the sure. rational or effective approach, I think, makes sense. Otherwise, I think it's fine. And I do personally also give to... Like, I mean, I've given money to homeless people, right? Like and most people have at some point. Like, is that the best use of funds? Not necessarily. Does it help someone? Yes. So it's fine to do. That's uh, it. I don't know. If I don't does. know. I think uh, it, it's, it's hard to imagine that um, it is destructive to them. I, I, I don't know how effective it is. It may, Maybe the primary thing it does is make you feel good for a moment. It, it can I, be I, destructive, but I want to talk a bit. Uh, I mean, I want to talk. This is a conversation for for a little bit but let's, let's talk about like right. poker making money making those dollar bills to to helping people yeah so uh i uh was playing poker from about 2010 i think as a full-time thing and the thing about poker is that it does provide some entertainment value but in the end it's a very self-serving pursuit right like relative to even a software engineer at some company, you're usually developing a product and then a bunch of people use the product and you helped a little bit with it. It's like, okay, you've contributed to society or whatever you want to call it or to to civilizational progress in some way. Whereas with poker, um, I had a lot of fun playing it. it. It was kind of something where my light gambling addiction, as Doyle says, just found a game that he can beat. <laughs> I think it was Doyle. Uh, and yeah, that applied to me as well. So it was incredibly fun. I think it does provide entertainment value to people. It's kind of small relative to other sports though. And, uh, it also definitely teaches you a bunch of valuable ways of thinking. Uh, there's no doubt around that, but I always thought that the impact on civilization is kind of small. And I always wanted to do something outside of just focusing on games. Uh, so that's why I was looking for what to do and. Uh, as then in 2013 through Stefan Huber, um, I stumbled on a philanthropy that tries to be effective and kind of use the scientific method in figuring out where to give money uh, rather than not uh, rather than not use it and just do an emotional giving approach. Um, I just was really into the idea of combining the two things, and that's why we started um, Reg in the end. Uh, because it allowed for still playing poker for the next years. I didn't want to stop, but also I was spending probably, depending on the year, between 20 to 35% of my time on reg uh, and the rest on poker. And that allowed kind of for the years of 2014 to 2019 to 
get some experience in um, another way of um, yeah having output in the world as well. And then during COVID, uh, I initially just played two months straight, uh, as many did, because the online games were nuts. And just like won a ton in the first month and then lost it all back and was at perfect zero over two months, roughly. And looked at it and just got that feeling again of, wow, <laughs> I've just spent like 12 hours a day, 55 out of 60 days playing. And there is just, I had an experience. That's what I had, right? That's <laughs> uh, if you didn't get what you wanted, you, you got experience. That's, that's kind of what, you ended, what I ended up with. Um, and uh, then I just looked out into the world and what, what else do I want to do? And um, yeah, uh, had an opportunity where I was teaching some people from Bridgewater Poker. They were teaching me economics. And uh, through that, then I was more interested to do something else than poker. And then an opportunity came around where I had already paused playing poker for a few months. And then Elon was looking for some advice with his foundation. So I started advising the foundation first and then over the next one and a half years took up various roles in the end, um, leading the strategy and grant uh, analysis at, at the foundation as well. Okay, well, congratulations. Uh, I think that the, I actually was not really, I didn't realize that poker had much to do with effective altruism, but I think it actually has quite a lot to do with it, as it turns out. Um, although it's not very obvious. I, uh, I got two things in a little bit different of a pathway, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, definitely I've felt the experiences of failing like I've wasted my time, but I believe that that's actually a little bit of a delusion um, for, for a couple reasons. Mostly because like it's part of like kind of the bigger picture. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you still, like, the process of learning Luscious is just another version of variance in disguise is the way that I look at it. But personally, what really hit 100%, me... 100%, by the way, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to say that it's a, a waste of time. Uh, I am very, very happy about having spent 10 years in poker full-time. And especially having done so during the age, like, in my 20s. You know, it's like, when else do you want to travel the world and be free? Oh, yeah, do you yeah, want to yeah. do it in your 60s? Yeah. It's better to do it in the 20s or 30s. And as you say, like so many valuable lessons I learned from it that yeah. um, I wouldn't have learned and you wouldn't have learned if we just worked in like at a bank doing some financial analysis of whatever insurances. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, well, poker uh, in many ways, uh, it strengthens the muscle of critical thinking through um, through a lot of incomplete information, which is very much applicable, applicable to the real world. I view it as sort of like a training ground mm -hmm. towards real world problems. You start dealing with people, which, you know, for the most part, or nearly 100%, I would say are essentially like probabilistic machines. This might be a bit of a controversial view. I wonder what your view is on this, but like, if Whether you do something... Like a probabilistic machine? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like you could view it as that, except you don't have the assigned probabilities. This I is think, how I generally, I, yeah, not I'm, everyone functions 100% like this, but it's damn near close, uh, I think especially it, a lot of people. I, think I, I would split between what is my uh, like knowledge, basically the epistemics of the situation, what's my, that is probabilistic, probably. But the ontology, the reality of the human is probably that they're not quite a probabilistic machine would be my take. 
Um, Let's. So you agree with me? I, I also say not quite, mm -hmm. because. Uh, but a lot of people, in most circumstances, you can attribute most of their actions to probabilistic realities. Like, if you do good to someone, there's a really high chance they return good back. You can even look mm -hmm. through the course of revolution and see why that is. Because mm -hmm. like you'd rather treat someone good who treats you good, and so they're likely to continue the cycle of mm -hmm. uh, doing good for each other. Or and there's like a percent chance that they say "fuck you," I'm gonna like take that and go walk away, and they end the cycle of reoccurring goodness, mm -hmm. etc. But uh, you know, it's it, it's hard to tell exactly how that shows up. But to some extent, potentially, this can be measured. I yeah, think. and you can improve the probabilities of it occurring one way or the other as well. Yeah, yeah. The thing I was pointing at, there is a split that I think uh, sometimes is quite relevant, actually, uh, between is is it probabilistic because of the inherent kind of uh, um, incomplete knowledge that we have, and therefore there is uncertainty, or is the thing at the base reality level uncertain, like quantum um, phenomena are on the base reality level uncertain, right, Like or rather probabilistic. Well, or they occur in, with different weights in many ways, depends on which theory you believe in. So but, I think, go ahead, go ahead, actually. No, uh, so I th that, that's why it's, I, I think that our perception of a human is, is, uh, and their actions is often probabilistic, but I think it's mostly because we don't have sufficient knowledge, where if um, we kind of ask them the right questions, then the uncertainty goes down, right? And then it can nearly become deterministic as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, for the most part, yeah, that's true. But certain people function in different ways. It depends on what, uh, you know, this is one of the concepts in AI of like how the AI is going to turn out, um, which is the value loading system, I believe it's called. And in mm -hmm. people, people have different value loading systems. And a lot of people have um, a high value loading system in belonging, which makes them much less likely to think in ways that deter against that. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty easy to see this. It just basically means a lot of people follow the pack. And this makes them much more deterministic if they keep doing stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and But I think ultimately, you're, you're, you know, you're kind of right, is that there's parts of humanity or whatever being aliveness is that are, that virtually cannot be deterministic. They just probably going to come from the guys that or people or women or whatever that uh don't follow don't care that much about like going along with the crowd that's what i think mm -hmm. yeah i i agree that uh, it's funny that you pointed out the main value uh to be belonging i that's kind of my slightly sometimes controversial take is that people but i suppose it's not that controversial it's actually quite clear that people more optimize for belonging and connection than uh, truth or I was like thinking exactly the same thing. I mean, yeah. this is one of the reasons why, you know, you see in the world today where, especially in Western world, where it's a bit scarier to tell the truth and there's all this like parabolic downside or whatever. Um, and a lot of society is kind of taught to like give lots of white lies and mm -hmm. things of this nature, but it ultimately still causes all kinds of problems throughout. I mean, I've noticed it myself, it just drives me crazy. Uh, so that's why part of the reason why I built the podcast is I just can't stand it. It's like, I got to do something. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's understandable because through that lens, you know, if you value belonging, which makes sense, like if you don't belong to a group, you're 
kind of screwed in the real world, especially really complicated real world. And uh, you know, telling the truth too much pisses off a lot of people. Not everyone. I would actually say off. that we're less screwed today than kind of from where our um, desire to belong has evolved to exist in the first place. Because now, if you don't, if you get ostracized from one group, like the internet is so large, you can find whatever. <laughs> create whatever belief system you want and you'll find someone who believes it, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you'll yeah. find some That's Facebook group. No one uses Facebook anymore, but um, apparently 3 billion people still do. So I suppose people do still use Facebook. Well, so, you know, as traveling in many different places, there are cultures, by the way, that absolutely do tell the truth, even in situations where people assumed that it was just totally default not to. Hmm. Um, they'll, like, tell you point blank in, like, Eastern Europe or Israel or whatever, like, what the truth is. Hmm. Um, but the, the whole, whole way their culture works different or in India, for example, like a lot of things hmm. work very differently there, like dating, for example, it's one of the biggest ones. And then, uh, Japan just the way people the do business right? is quite different. Huh? Is Japan the opposite of that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about Japan to say, but one thing I can hmm. say about Japan, having been there, especially recently, Japan is unique in that, uh, that respect is really, really highly valued. And if you go there and you're something like two minutes late, it's considered very rude. It's, it's like something that you like almost don't want to show yourself for something. I'm not even kidding. Like there's, it's, it's a kind of a funny thing in Japan because you, I was sitting there even thinking I was going to do research on this. I was wondering like, what is the problem with this country? People are like programmed to be so nice based off of each other. And it just proved that people could in fact, like do things like, never be late i mean they were a little bit too extreme that they'd always be like 10 minutes early and i think like sometimes you should be late actually and it's not really a big deal but um <laughs> but uh, not usually I, I don't think i'm i think i need more japanese mi military discipline um so but, uh, wouldn't make it in japan is what you're saying <laughs> yeah in japan i'd have some problems but actually uh, I think it would be good training to just like stay there and develop the right. habit because I think it's solvable. But uh, anyway, I'm not sure about Japan, but definitely in those cultures, in the, the Asian cultures, it's like more likely, you, you don't want to be so, uh, typically you don't want to be so confrontational, but this is less true of China from my experience mm. for some reason. China has a much more complicated history. Um, but uh, in a lot of Western cultures, I can say that it looks as though creating enemies or making people dislike you, at least on the surface, will hurt your ability to succeed in the long run. So they like do this thing of like not telling truth in order to not be disliked. Is my personal theory mm -hmm. in like London and Los Angeles, and they want people to like, yeah. I mean, it's a bit more manipulative in these kinds of places, but yeah, totally. or at least not losing sights on the long term anyway. Um, what's your experience like with dealing with the people in effector of altruism? Have you found that the same lessons from poker carry over? Have you found that these people to be good to deal with? I would think, well, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to, what's mm -hmm. that world been like compared to the poker world? Yeah. So I, uh, I lived in London for, um, the 2010s basically. And then I moved to Oxford in, uh, 192021. And uh, in large part to live closer to the effective altruism community that existed in Oxford. Um, well, it also existed in London, but in Oxford were some of the kind of like focal 
intellectual points of, of the EA community. So Bostrom, Will McCaskill, et cetera, lived there. So yeah, so in, the, the benefit from Oxford was that um, much of the kind of intellectual center of effective altruism was at the time in Oxford, and I wanted to be closer to that and to just interact. You, you end up interacting with people much more if you live 15 or three minutes away than 45, right? So oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. By, by a lot, actually. And uh, so we moved there. Also, we lived in the countryside, which was nice. And uh, yeah, there are quite a few similarities. Probably the, so the kind of being a bit on the spectrum rate is even higher in uh, EA than it is in poker. I, I think like in really? EA, it's something like, it's something like a third of people or so. It's, it's kind of crazy. crazy. Yeah, yeah it's, okay. it's, it's very high. It's, well, I, I, it's, it's somewhat, I suppose, unsurprising, um, but only in hindsight, maybe where one thing that is being done by EA is kind of an emphasis or arguably an overemphasis on quantification and numbers and breaking everything down into oh, systems, et cetera, right? So that comes yeah. very natural for, for uh, people who just can sit for a long time with numbers and sheets and figure out like formula, et cetera. Sure. Well, a lot <laughs> of the aliens kind of traits do exist in the you know, in the spectrum of like the whatever's out there, by definition, autism tends to be on the the other stuff that's not necessarily mm -hmm. relevant to like how we developed as like you know animal society or whatever it is. By the way, another funny thing is that um, uh, I don't agree. By the way, with the utilitarian view, one hundred percent. I think there's lots of truth in it with way. the moral. Okay, let's get into that a little bit later. But one thing I want to mention is that is it turns out there was some studies in in autism and it turns out a lot of them actually tend to be much more on the pure side an egalitarian kind of hmm. view of like looking at things which i found to be interesting hmm. uh i'd have to dig up the study but just basically like a lot less corruption exists within that and but and also that is a bit of an alien view as well mm -hmm. in order to think this in a kind of way you need to like see things from this like really distant perspective mm -hmm. of like see things from like a theory that doesn't really exist of the world where everyone helps each other and everyone's one or whatever you want to call it. Well, that's, this only really exists out in fucking infinity. It doesn't really exist in like the real world where people should form groups in a lot of situations. Well, I, I don't want to use the word should, but uh, if you look at things in terms of closed games, etc., much makes much more sense. But when you do consider things out into infinity, this is where... This is where morality seems to have more of a uh, have more of how do you say a um, like a, a foot to stand on. It's like why do all these nice things mm -hmm. that benefit? I've asked myself these kinds of questions. Why do nice things? This is where I came to my conclusions about rational effective giving myself. Well, not not the foundation, but the whole premise was like why why do these things? It's just it basically is like betting on infinity. Uh, from my point Wait, of view, to start doing so you're good, saying good that in the infinite case, do you mean that it's uh, an infinite game kind of that always lasts, or w w which infinity yes. part? Do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. like an iterative back and forth, etc., uh, situation. Yes, but this is also optimal from my point of view because mm -hmm. yeah, it I mean, looks like all their pathways, point. all their pathways of action essentially lead to zero, um, which would be death, or that everything's pointless. Uh, like more Wait, or less. Where, where do all pathways lead to zero? 
Well, when you start taking actions that do things that are short-term short-term beneficial, it begs mm -hmm. the question like where, well... Oh, you mean that you get a much higher payoff if you're focusing on the long-term when the long-term is very large? Yeah, the only hypothetical payoff that's the largest possible is actually infinity. Mm. Um, the ones that bet on infinity where, where it suggests yeah. something like infinite virtue. So I'm yeah, kind of in two minds about this because I think infinity is just such a weird, weird thing where it's unsurprising that things become very different when you multiply by infinity, right? Like then you do get very different values. And I'm not yes. sure that that's fair to do. We're not even sure on infinity in the first place, right? Like we don't know whether the universe will last forever. Like presently, our current understanding of physics says that will end up with the heat death in whatever, 10 to 100 years or so. And then there will be no interaction ever anymore of anything. Who knows, maybe then the universe reforms or something. But like our current understanding says that there is no infinity potentially. Also, we don't have anything smaller than the Planck length. So the size of it, it's, it's, it's like discrete at the bottom and finite at the top. So again, it's not infinite. So it might turn out that it is not discrete at the bottom and that it does last infinitely long. But I think the reasons to not use infinities, especially in moral reasoning, are pretty strong. Also because oh, most of the time for you, you get away with saying like a million years or something like this, which is the average lifetime of a species. It's like That's effectively years. infinity. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Like for much of the math that you're thinking about in that example, where like the your immediate short term action of eating the chocolate cake versus something else, like does have higher payoff already if you look at a million or so years. And then the people that claim that, hey, you're doing a wrong thing, which I think is justified by using infinities. Um, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't make that statement. Well, um, I would I would say the biggest error towards that is is basically it's like almost impossible to see or feel something like at infinity uh, and to communicate, especially how to feel it, it's mm -hmm. extremely difficult because, you know, you can think one thing, but whatever you're biologically conditioned to feel can be totally something different, um, totally. especially when it comes to doing things that your impulse really, really is programmed against. And this begs the question, okay, well, thinking about things like this how do we fix people to behave better this mm -hmm. opens up a massive uh thing which is what i'm personally more interested in working on but uh mm -hmm. i understand you have different things that you that you focus on in rational effective giving like particularly against um really high security risk type things for mm -hmm. the population such as mm -hmm. uh virus control and other kinds of things where people are naturally not likely to view these as large risk, but actually they really are, especially with like the power of technology increasing. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing, uh, initially when we started REG, um, we focused on human suffering alleviation today. So like global health type stuff. And then we added uh, animal welfare and uh, existential risk prevention. And um, existential risk work ended up being the thing I was most um, drawn to interested in and ended up doing because it uh, at the time at least we're talking like 20 
14, 15, 16, 17, it, it was just getting very little attention. Topics like um, pandemic risk and AI safety were pandemics, at least people were okay with you discussing, but they did seem very infrequent um, and hopefully still are. Um, and AI risks were you were just a weirdo every time talking about it. Now, obviously, really? very, in 2017, so, 18, so, so. 19, like just discussing. One, people thought that we're in a um, long plateau of AI potentially still, or that right now we'll get a little hype and then it's going to go away because that's what happened roughly every 20 to 30 years since the invention of um, uh, computers. That seems like a stupid way of looking at it. I mean, yeah, like, I mean people why should that trend continue? I mean, I guess yeah, with I agree. that, you know, technology is an exponential uh, upside or what's the word exponential curve of like its progress, especially since the last well, like hundred years, it's ridiculous to look at things like this. Yeah. So one, we're not designed to internalize exponential curves very well, right? Like our, um, sure. kind of ability to, uh, project them into the future is just inherently linear rather than exponential. And oh, then, by the way, this, yeah. Um, why don't you go ahead and finish your thought? I had another thought. Yeah, and then uh, specifically with AI, it actually happened to be the case that there were AI hype phases in the past where people thought that we'll get to um, some breakthrough came about, some new way of developing it, and then people thought that we'll get to um, just computers being able to solve tons of tasks for us already at the time, and then that got disproven twice. So actually people that were saying that we might be in another short-term hype phase rather than it continues, we're just pointing at the past, which is not a bad argument to choose, but it did seem that this time was different. I agree. And that's why we focused on it as well at the time, because this time did seem very different. It's just like put out like a bunch of artists out of business and like people can use like deep fakes and like even like yeah. movies and all this crazy shit. And people can use that to hack, hack and cheat, which is also like a wild security risk that's coming up. That's like a very real security risk. It's only been like a year age. since ChatGPT got released, like 15 months or so. Uh, the world's yeah, already yeah. kind of different. I interact. That's I like, mean, yeah, I interact with it quite a bit. It uh, coding improved in effectiveness a lot. I was um, making a birthday present uh, where I was. <laughs> I will have gifted it at the time of release, so I can say it. Where I was just designing some cards, and I just did did it all in mid journey, you know. And it just takes Everyone. no time. Previously, you would have had to hire an artist and describe it and then go back and forth. And now I just mid journey it within like a few moments and just have awesome art. It's crazy. Yeah, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, AI is definitely going to be the future just as, as it was in poker. I mean, it just has to be used really. To right. Get yeah. Good that was a motivator to quit poker, by the way, when, um, uh, the, uh, Noam Brown's team, I forget what they're called, but 2017, 2019. So Carnegie yeah. Mellon, maybe? Yeah, he was at Carnegie Mellon first, and he went to Facebook research. Um, and uh, first they did the um, uh, beat the heads up players, right? And then it was the same, partially the same team that ended up beating the six max game, where they played oh, with really? Nick Petrangelo and a few others. Oh, I didn't know about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's like a decent reason to quit poker. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways for it to flourish. And, uh, really? like, I mean, you just change some variables. I don't know how quick to adapt these AI things are if we just change the structure of the game. I, I fully agree. I was looking at that, um, with a friend in 2020, um, 
uh, to kind of figure out a way how to easily change it up. And uh, one thing was to, I think that'll be interesting if anyone wants to try it, you, because uh, basically all the training that currently exists in, what are they called, the tools like w w something wizard, uh, GTO wizard, uh, that's the fast one right now, right? Anyway, but it's run on a full card deck. If you just remove two cards, show them openly, you have 2,500 decks already. You just at random remove two cards at the beginning of the game. You can probably bunch that's the two. Interesting idea. You can, and the, because the goal of the design should be something that is similar enough such that people don't have to relearn a whole new game and concept, but also different enough such that it um, makes it harder for solvers. And what about different... Uh, what about different uh, anti-structures and blind structures? Um, you could try, I, th I think you could try that. I think just adding a number of things. The reason why I like the card removal is because people are already familiar with the card being dead and having to adjust in their mind to it, right? Whereas if you change the anti and blind structure a lot, now people are like, oh, I, I like this other variant more. I feel like just taking a, two cards out, people so, just know like internally immediately. But yeah, you could do tons of stuff. You could just add a, uh, an ocean or whatever, right? Like fourth fourth uh, card to come out also changes everything. Ooh. Oh, that's <laughs> crazy. Okay. Well, people are doing kind of related things. They made things quite a bit more complicated by introducing this idea of like you pay like a massive bounty of like you don't want to pot. It's called Squid Game. And it's yeah, actually I a great one home games. It's really like, fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some just slight permutations really things up quite a bit for like the hardcore mm -hmm. you know uh what's the word uh but the guys who like memorize every little combination and that kind of thing and don't view the concept which it right. appears that ai has some issues with at some level um or at least isn't doing i mean it seems like at least seemed like uh humans it seems like it hasn't quite reached that point yet of like if it does reach that point of like what's the word uh i want to say um analogical reasoning mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's a byproduct of uh, artificial general intelligence i believe that's where it is uh mm -hmm. if it reaches that point sounds like it'd be some really serious threats is that right i mean yeah could could come out in two ways one would be that it just saw situations and uses them again for another situation by analogy and the other one maybe it's just uh so good that you throw a new situation at it and it can just you can run it within a day and it has this solution from first principles again for like a new game right that's what um uh the when when alpha go the program that beat uh, the best go player in the world at the time came out they then later re reran uh, they improved the algorithm where they didn't preload the human games but just let it play against itself and self-generate the oh. um, trillions of situations uh, it's not really the same thing i mean that's like that's the cheap way that's the way that doesn't really work for real world situations yeah, well yeah because too, too many too many uh, degrees of freedom in the real world for sure yeah yeah sure in go you can only make that many moves even though go is a lot of moves more than poker um sure but, yeah Okay. I, by the way, the the example that you were talking about about like discussing AI is like something uh, that kind of gets at the point I was referring to with uh, morality, right? Like the highest EV thing to do as far as like opening up a discussion would be for like the collective would be to talk about AI if it truly is like the biggest threat. No one's giving it any any um, 
attention, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just like this massive gaping hole, but it hurts yourself a lot to do that, at least temporarily. Mm. Like maybe at some point people realize, but God knows when, where they realize, oh shit, that guy was right, that weirdo that kept talking about AI, and actually we should be congratulating him, but he might be dead at that point. <laughs> In which case, so it begs the question of like, what is the point of doing all this stuff? And the hope <laughs> is that in fact there is like an afterlife and there's some kind of weird justice out there. Uh, but uh, yeah. if not, I, it means... that. I feel like even if there is an afterlife, you're still supposed to make the best of your life here. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, the idea. yeah, you don't want to be the it's it's funny that if you actually I'm not saying that we did at all avert the bad things, but it's like this idea of like, oh, I went back into the time I went into the time machine. I went back in time and I killed Gestaffelstein or something. It's like, wait, who who do you kill? It's like. I don't know who you're talking about. It's like, damn, it worked. <laughs> but now the threat also disappeared, right? So that might happen with um, AI. But I, currently, a lot of people are paying attention to AI. So it's not right. It's not the case anymore as it was previously that um, you anyone mentioning AI risks is seen as a weirdo because prior it was uh, uh, a lot premised on the idea that. AI is just not going to be capable enough within the future. Uh, right. And now it's very okay. clear that it's capable, um, but now people also think that, well, the benefits outweigh the negatives. And for what it's worth, I also think so. Cool. The benefits Sorry. of AI will outweigh the negatives. It's just that it's such a high variance path. There are so many incredible benefits, but also they are there because it's so insanely powerful and it's going to be integrated in our lives so much. So that also has the potential of the power running out poorly where it uh, ends up being very bad and i just want to make sure that we kind of avoid the bad path or help at least think through how we get there to avoid that because then we can reap the amazing benefits i think the world will be so much richer in experience and wealth and everything with ai than without um i have a couple of thoughts on this um i think i think part of this is a little bit of a trap because um so another thing is it's a bit of a trap to keep chasing to keep well it's done in a bit but to like always like aim for the value of what's better and better um in spite of other things in spite of something like truth for example mm -hmm. if it's forfeited at the expense of that it will eventually lead towards a bit of a collapse of a bunch of issues um, uh, I think, but the biggest thing is that you're, you, the way that you feel is, is adjusted because it's always relative. Like it has to, even if, if it, if it continually accelerates, I guess that's good, but it, then begs the question of like, how is it going to continually accelerate? I mean, even if we are, we're all injected into the metaverse, we would just get adjusted to that metaverse and then that would become the new reality because everything would be defined relative to each other. So yeah, I, like, I see what you mean. So you're making the point that we're all basically kind of hedonic treadmill, like we'll always get used to the new thing. And uh, if our happiness or satisfaction or meaning or whatever is built on comparative stuff rather than absolute, then that's not going to be that relevant uh, for the total. I'm, I'm not quite, I think the comparative part is large, but I don't think it's the only part 
basically in a world where imagine a world where everyone just has their legs just hurt all the time it's just everyone's legs are designed such that they're in actual pain not such that the brain is tuning it out but such that you actually experience pain all the time and you're not walking etc i feel like that i mean obviously that's not a proof but i can't imagine that that one is in total life satisfaction no worse than the world where everyone is like physically extremely healthy um it just seems like there are some there there is comparative stuff like um comparing your like wealth to your neighbor or whatever but there is also i think some hard truths like how often do you get pain uh neurons firing in your head like that that the, the fewer pain signals you get the better i think that one is oh, yeah, a hard yeah. truth no that's true or like how many yeah, I mean... moments of pure awe do you experience right like everyone had sure. something where they were so in love with someone that it was amazing right and it's like okay sure. do you want to have that experience once or 10 times 10 times is better than once sure oh yeah yeah no it should get uh in the case that you gave it should get diminishingly bad but of course like what is hell would be defined by as uh you know more than that it would be like it would be things getting actually poker actually can kind of uh, simulate both heaven and hell to a fair degree because it mm -hmm. requires an element of unpredictability. The best possible situation is where things get better overall on average and unpredictably so. But if you take around, mm -hmm. out the element of unpredictability, now you, you know, you get rid of elements. You probably get rid of like a feeling like of awe, like you can't really feel awe. Mm -hmm. It's like, you That's know, you're eating pizza every day. Mm -hmm. Right, and even if yeah, you like I, pizza, I actually agree with that. That sounds cool. It it, it oh. sounds very true to me that you do need unpredictability, because the <laughs> moment of surprise is kind of relevant for uh, experience to be novel in the first place, and probably you need constant new bads for hell and constant new goods for heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, these are the, basically the kind of pathways to get to where I went, wanted to go, decided to go to for my own like personal. Uh, route towards effective altruism is like, what's the point of anything? Um, <laughs> if like, whatever, it was just this uh, guy, Fedor Dostoevsky even like said, like you can justify any evil if there's mm -hmm. no afterlife. Um, if there's no infinity rather, some variation of infinity, million years or whatever. Um, that was like a big thing was like putting into all these thought experiments and actually in the topic of AI, they started to like, you know, play with this idea. I was actually reading a book uh, Liv Bowery was suggesting of uh, super intelligence, where they started to play with the idea of like different value loading situations. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that basically their value, the load, the values that they've loaded into the mind, however, through their experiences or however it exists or through their genes are what dictate all the differences in like what's quote unquote good and bad from the cultural significances and this mm -hmm. kind of gets at an important point in the theory of good and bad. I do not agree that it's 100% um, relative. I think there's, there's a way to solve it actually. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, by the way, the Russians is... don't forget like the, huh? they, the Russians make many very depressing arguments. That doesn't mean, you know, they gotta also look a bit at like where, where they live <laughs> uh, always cold and difficult and, Oh, I want to just go back into my little hut and hopefully <laughs> I can warm myself. It's, I mean, yeah, yeah, then that's you'll also write part of depressing the... literature. 
Uh-huh. I, I think that's also where like that's also kind of indicative of the like the way that the environment has kind of shaped their source of beliefs to right, right. Or their ways of like looking at things in terms of value. It shapes their values to a degree because like they as a uh, you know through population have like oriented to be rewarded more towards not really expecting highly of things and blah 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 blah. And so it leads people to be a bit more cold. I mean, it's just like the bias of like that whole generation to a degree, I would, I would personally say. But, um, and, you know, the idea of these AIs playing with the different value loadings leads to some really crazy possibilities, such as if the AI even has good intentions and decides, okay, this is an example from the book. Okay, we're going to make everyone happy. And it decides, you know, through the utilitarian logic, Okay, it's actually good if we make everyone happy by hooking everyone up to machine to machines and just like stimulating positive feelings for everyone, just making everyone smile all the time. Right. Uh, and it doesn't take much uh, introspection like or common sense to see that this this sucks. This is not the idea of uh, how this would work. But something like this could absolutely happen. You know, even like a small subset or whatever it is, and just create some really weird possibilities or some machine could just like, you know, they make too much of something, like make too many paper clips or whatever that says up screwing everything over. I mean, there's lots of, it seemed like impossible to prevent AI from like screwing up in some major way when you yeah, look at all well, the different I, possibilities. Uh, uh, the thing you describe is kind of, uh, one can look at different categories of um, risks. And um, at the time, so if you're at super intelligence, I think that came out in like 2015 or so, people were quite a bit quite concerned with the idea of rogue AIs. So you create the model and implement it into the world and it ends up doing what you didn't want it to do. Like, for example, you wanted it to create happiness and it just like found some hack around it because the whole reason to use AI in the first place is that it's going to consider strategies and tactics that you might not have thought of, right? That's what being more intelligent is at least one of the things it means. Anyway, so, and then it ends up doing something that you wouldn't want it to do. So, well, you should have written your code better or like use better data sources or something. But it's like all in the category of rogue AI. And it doesn't even have to be that it goes out and wants to destroy humans. It's just that it does something that you didn't want it to do in the first place. But then the currently the thing that people worry a bit more about or like a less kind of sci-fi lens to take is, um, and we can see it already with now the powerful um, large language models that are being used, is we are currently starting to implement more and more uh, AI use into, for example, right now you can edit emails with it and you already use it to edit emails, right? Later, you might have it write emails once it's good enough at that where you just like give it a short prompt. You can already do that where you give it a short prompt and it just writes the email. Not everyone uses it for it yet, but inevitably it will become better at doing so and you will feel like it's more effective. So if you look a few years ahead with that, then you will basically integrate um, the model that is designed for one task or a variety of tasks into more and more areas of your life. And it will probably over time be uh, in the executive position in a lot of parts of the economy overall. And at that point, you'll probably not be able to turn it off. So the thing that people used to always give as an argument uh, against any worry is that, oh, you'll just like turn off the AI. But 
have we like we see now that social media is kind of bad we haven't turned off tiktok even in the us um we've seen like teen depression go up um for girls it's particularly bad like there's there's just not really and that's one company running it with ai it's going to be just tons of different services running tons of small parts how do you turn it off it's like turning off the internet at that point it's no one is going to turn off the internet the internet exists it's just like it's just going to run and the same is also true for ai and so and then at that point if you look at it like um what happens over the next years it's it's just integrated in more and more parts of our world which is great because things become more effective um more efficient and grow faster but if there are some inherent problems one you might not notice them because ai's also communicate to each other rather than just with humans now like a lot oh, of the really? communication at that point well so it if sounds... my ai writes an email then your um, to you your ai might write an email in response to me and we just have a conversation oh, back and forth and then you and i are just given like hey after a long deliberation of 500,000 messages back and forth which lasted 2 seconds we have decided that uh dan you should do a and igor you will do b and um and we are just used to take that uh as truth because historically it perform we perform better just going with what the smarter than us thing tells us to do and at that point it's like you you get a lot of different potentials for bad outcomes one is that you miss for a while that um there are mistakes in the system and it slowly just like destroys some resource or value in society that you actually care a lot about or uh you could have like evolutionary effects then between the ais where like the ais that are all competing with each other in the economy they then start going through something akin to evolution where they probably also write themselves to improve themselves um they probably want to have more space and they might fight wars against each other and then if we are the secondary species on planet earth then yeah how do secondary species on this planet perform when we fight a war not so well <laughs> so like it's more about our war anyway i just wanted to highlight that because um yeah there are a number of worries around ai but again i think the total amount of upside is that's the world i want to live in for sure the one where we have ai everywhere and it functions well i mean you do want to live there yeah for sure i mean someone said it i think correctly is like if we yeah just imagine like the the potential for good or like for happiness i think we are not spending as much time imagining how much better everyone could feel as we spend thinking about the negative side so you everyone knows who has done i don't know who's fallen in love and then had their love reciprocated and they've met for the first time or you've done some like uh in a laboratory of course in controlled condition like as part of a therapy mdma therapy or something and you're feeling incredibly loving and fantastic like those experiences are much better than the day-to-day -day life but that could be the base i think and then you could have much much more above it where like you're just creating art on a like snip of the fingers basically ease and it's just fulfilling to you at all times and it's it has massive variety etc anyway i think so it's hard know. to imagine 
but I think there's a lot of upside and I think we could get there if we have abundant intelligence basically and abundant energy. So a couple things I happen to disagree with. I feel like this has already happened actually. Uh, actually, in fact, in Western world, I think that a lot of people have, re have not realized that in fact, they uh, are wildly perceiving the way the world works in their own like bubbled lens. In fact, there's something called, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, there's like an acronym called WEIRD. It refers to Western educated, independent, uh, rich, uh, and what's the other one? Like democratic societies where they just don't function like normal societies. Uh -huh. Really, and it's partly because modernization has just like brought like every desire to mm -hmm. our, our fingertips, fingertips a lot. Where it gets to the point of like, oh, like why do we need to feel discomfort at all? And it gets to the point of like where you know this gets back to the value loading system of if we value pleasure so much, it it makes these values of things like loyalty, for example, or um, even valuing truth, because truth requires some negative things um, to exist. If you're always searching for pleasure, you bury the truth. Um, you know, yeah, by the so, way, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I feel like truth is, it. I don't know. I mean, at the same time, um, as we were talking before about the um, people valuing belonging above truth, and kind of that EAs are doing more of the, they're more on the spectrum, poker players as well. Um, mm -hmm. You and me a little as well. I would, I would, sure. I, would I, I would assume you consider yourself also a bit there. Um, for you, it's, for you, it's easier, and for me as well to like the ratio of truth to belonging is a bit probably higher on truth than to other people. Um, and yes, I think I've noticed that, especially in poker. Actually. Yeah, and also for people on on the spectrum in general, I think like it's easier because the yes, value of right. truth is higher, right? They're just saying a thing honestly because why else would you say something else? It's like why well, do these words not mean what these words are supposed to mean? <laughs> because you have to, yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of, I kind of, I, I do understand why. By the way, people do these kinds of things, but I think they're just deluding themselves. I mean, this is my personal view. Uh, but basically, I just think that this leads to a lot of like games being played that kind of ultimately cause lots of pain let's put it like that and hmm. i mean i see why they're doing it but it's very short-sighted is my view mm -hmm. um yeah i agree I, mean, I see why people view this as socially intelligent i no no but it's i really agree that it's short-sighted and that's why i also agree that uh uh valuing truth highly doesn't have to necessarily lead to pain it's actually like my perspective and that of many people is is Oh wow! Uh, it's a maybe a short-term discomfort for long-term benefit is kind of how proven to be wrong usually is, right? It's a short-term. Yes. Overall, you you benefit from it, except if you're in your dying last five minutes or something. But yeah. well, um, so yeah. so therefore, why would you feel pain at all then about it if it's just short-term and net positive uh, overall? So that's why I think you can actually have truth as an kind of optimization function as well. It just happens to be that we right now value other things more. Uh, but yeah, also on, uh, because you are going about the different values, I think pleasure, like what is it? Like just pure hedonic pleasure, like, okay, maybe that's, I don't, I don't mean to describe that. Usually when I, when I talk about it, what I more mean is whatever anyone personally defines as their happiness, which might be sure. full, like, mega meaning very low in personal happiness the ability yeah. to give all the time or belonging or whatever right like in the end we all have slightly different 
um, preferences oh, yes, of, of these typical domains. But uh, it and the thing that sh should be enabled more with uh, less scarcity, and which again is enabled by more energy and more intelligence, which is due to more AI. Uh, through that, we should then also have more abundance of all these things, so more ability to um, live out kind of our preferences. So maybe just one's preferences is the kind of more most um, uh, higher category thing to describe them. Sure. Um, on this, I, I, I do agree. I want to uh, say what my perception is on this, which is, uh, so this basically, this all comes from how people have loaded their values and they can actually be changed through various different experiences like the, the neurobiology can be changed. I mean, this is actually what yoga and breathwork does. It changes the neurobiology of like how your nerves interact with these kinds of feelings so that you deal with stress in a better way. This is what they do, which is, I think this is really compelling evidence of like, how do they know to do this like 5,000 years ago? Mm. Um, maybe something was up. I don't know what though, but it just seems very striking to me that meditation and all these sorts of things do in fact change these things. They had, they had, they didn't have a phone or they didn't have many distractions to, to, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a very good point. <laughs> you know, in truth, they didn't like, they, they may not have uh, reached the true point of, of, uh, you know, being able to deal with all kinds of stimulus in like a, an equitable and appropriate in a way that really like optimized for their, hmm. the best ways of doing things. Um, and I think that basically this is just a function of biological conditioning and, um, you know, like genetic strategies and things like that. I mean, from a certain perspective, everything is, can be interpreted as rational. What is rational then might be to reconfigure oneself towards these t hypothetical potential possibilities, or at least nudge oneself towards that, um, which is what I'm personally like looking into doing. I mean, this is the mm -hmm. whole point of doing so it. Exactly, yes. Well, to see that maybe there's a different way of doing, having your value system that benefits you more overall instead of like, I mean, the simplest example is what if you're hooked on cocaine? It's a really good example. The high that you get from cocaine and the down that you get from not getting cocaine, in this isolated perspective, it makes sense for you to go get cocaine. Like that is actually morally correct, or, or excuse mm -hmm. me, not morally correct, but it's makes the most sense for you. Hopefully it's like you've got to get this cocaine yeah. or you're getting screwed over. But this causes all kinds of problems in your the rest of your life where you might realize maybe there's a better way of like not getting drugged up on cocaine. And I'm just like basically saying, well, everything's kind of a drug in a way, mm -hmm. unless you're using things for pure healthy possibilities, in which case then it might make sense to pursue the possibility that those healthy possibilities are in fact better. Now, mm -hmm. that's a hard thing to sell to people, but, I mean, they have sold it in some ways. Like, yoga essentially is one variation of selling it. Like, this podcast was an attempt to do that. I mean, a lot of rational, effective giving probably does aim at doing such things in terms of showing people, well, you know, you may feel positive about helping the homeless guy and giving the money, but this isn't going to actually help solve their problem. It's just going to, you know, it's going to, it might even perpetuate their problem sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's ways of reconfiguring. It's also through cinema and movies and things like that uh, to, like, influence people in certain kind of ways. Like, if you know, like, through a movie or whatever that a certain evil exists, you might behave differently. Or you might, totally. like, mm -hmm. you know, your value system would change a little bit. 
anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, I you think can this can change your value system. Like your value systems probably change anyway, a little bit over time. Yes, um, they do. I think and so. you can also change them uh, in a directed, um, active effort. And yeah, there is a. Yeah, I, I think different people have different like again preferences on whether do you do you want to just be the kind of like Buddhistic, like always. I have no unfulfilled desires, hence I am completely at peace and in a state of eternal bliss on the basis of not have missing anything. Uh, I don't know. I, I am, I'm more of a roller coaster type guy. I like, <laughs> I like the, as you pointed out, uh, the uh, unpredictability of stuff. I want a little bit of unpredictability for full heaven. Um, I don't, the, the total um, remove all desires. I'm probably not giving, um, the strongest description of Buddhism, but, uh, in either case, I think, yeah, I want a little bit of struggle. <laughs> I want a little bit of desire and chase. I so, uh, I don't think that, that the Buddha, I, I, this, I want to investigate myself, but I don't think the Buddha necessarily meant no roller coasters at all, but rather to, to not let the role, to look at it like kind of like the way that you might look at his poker hand. Like you will get some poker hands on a roller coaster. Like what is the point of life if there's new roller coasters of some kind? I mean, life is essentially like an experiential roller coaster. I mean, this is why we enjoy mm -hmm. roller coasters. But like when you play a poker hand and you get really flustered and upset, it would be, you would still feel that emotion, but you're in total control over it. And you're no longer like bound to react in a way that hurts you overall. Mm -hmm. It would be more like setting your desires where they should be is what I is how I per personally understand okay. Buddhism. Yeah, so maybe I, I was giving it the wrong um, description. Yeah, okay, as long as I can have roller coasters, I'm okay with Buddhism. <laughs> I, I think, well, you know, you see other people that have potentially achieved the equivalent of Buddhism, such as uh, like Krishna, for example, he had some fucking roller coasters. Um, okay. Uh, but other uh, maybe some other people too i mean you would maybe consider like christ one of these people um but like you know the whole point of these other guys was to show like you didn't have to live a monastic life and just like go live in a cave and like mm. a, achieve this highest state i mean otherwise what would be the point of everything else uh that's my personal view on things really hard to sell uh i mean it intrigues me anyway um all, all I really advocate is because it just, you know, everything's got to have its place. It's just like possibly to, you know, in poker, there's like a hierarchy of things that matter when you're looking at a hand and trying to decide the best, best decision. And I think it's just basically the same for life as well. Like you probably don't want to have, you know, uh, snorting cocaine and getting really he heavily addicted on cocaine. It's really high up on that list. Or maybe something's mm -hmm. wrong. It's just mm -hmm. my personal perspective. Or there's probably much better ways of dealing with things. And I would think that that's my personal guess is that's probably the best, the optimal way of living is just having your neurobiology sorted out in the right kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's funny specifically around nutrition. I mean, addictions are kind of generally, I think that breaks it a bit probably, but around nutrition, it's particularly hard probably, right? Like where oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, we desire, like now we can have sugar on tap and we're only into it because 
um, it was a hard to find resource back then. And that's why you would <laughs> just like gorge on it as soon as you can. And now it's just yeah. available all the time. So you're literally kind of like a kid in the candy bar, at, uh, candy shop at that's all times. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, fortunate thing for you, my taste buds adjusted very quickly. Like many, like I don't know if many, but seven, eight years ago or so, I kind of just went through a um, eating much less sugar for, for about a month or two, or no, no sugar basically. Uh, at least no, like yeah, uh, directly sweets. Uh, you end up having like similar things like sugars. Uh, but yeah, my taste buds adjusted where I just don't crave it now anymore. I don't know, probably. People are different, but uh, now I'm kind of happier with. Uh, I feel as happy having a savory thing, uh, as a, and I often order as a dessert. Like I just want a starter or more of the main, <laughs> or a beer yeah. or something. You know, like a savory thing rather than this. So uh, kind yeah. of. Uh, well, maybe I should go that route. I mean, maybe bit, I, I have not kicked sugar, as it turns out. Maybe well, I really should. Kind of combines huh? multiple things, right? You can do the one month like yoga style being okay with this unfulfilled desire of yours, just noticing it and letting it pass while also improving your um, taste buds. <laughs> Maybe I should. That's not a bad idea. I almost did it. How about I doing it for a month? Practice. February, just February. February is even the shortest month of all. I'm giving you the easiest possible month as a as an option here. Uh, <laughs> it would be March. It can't be February, as it turns out. But I am looking into that precisely. <laughs> what sugar plants do you have in February already? Uh, it's more like it's more like I'm just doing stuff in February. But as a matter of okay. fact, one of the things I've looked into is the idea. Like I think the the whole modern society is hypersexualized. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another one of those things. But uh, you know, that's another discussion. I mean, there's lots of examples. I mean, uh, apparently, like, the, you know, a teenager these days seen, has seen more women naked than, you know, like, by, like, a factor of a thousand times or some crazy amount compared to all his ancestors ever um, <laughs> until, you know, the, the whatever, the 1980s or whatever. <laughs> all this stuff is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a big one. Um we should talk more about uh, about Reg and your involvement with Elon Musk. It sounds like you really like the 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 stuff behind Reg and the kind of research you're you're doing for him. Um, so yeah, the idea of Reg was to find places where uh, the dollar goes further within the area of philanthropy. Right. And for that, we used many other organizations as kind of our guiding light on figuring out what these uh, effective charities are that we were then recommending to poker players. So th and that's kind of a similar thing that the Musk Foundation also aims to do. And uh, then there are like a set of beliefs about uh, the world that we also shared, which is why it made sense, which is uh, that, uh, well, one, um, you should uh, focus on like having higher bang for your buck too, that you will find those places if you look at the medium term future. So something like the next five to 50 years rather than today. Uh, and that you should look at places that are currently neglected as well and or, or where you can make a relevant difference on the margin is what matters. So uh, it might be the case that something has um, already a billion dollars of funding 
uh, some area, but actually its scale is so large that, and they're going into a totally wrong direction that maybe small amounts of money can still be helpful. But usually it's the case that the more money an area receives, the less impact you will have, right? Diminishing returns basically as well yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on spending the next million dollars. Um, anyway, so like there were a bunch of things that we believed um, between the Musk Foundation and Reg. And um, that's why that's why I ended up uh, working at it. Yeah, it makes, I mean, it makes quite a bit of sense. I mean, it's, it, it just applies the concept of like, you know, why when you go into this idea of like more and more, why not get more pleasure? Why not also do more good? I mean, when you look at this concept of pleasure, it seems that inevitably you have to get to the concept of doing good because... For what it's worth, I want to I wanna just uh, t tag in here saying that uh, the doing good is definitely a much broader category than philanthropy. So you can do a lot of good with for-profit businesses, obviously, as well. Oh, I know, yes. Even like Better most by for-profit businesses. Uh, the way how I've seen philanthropy for a while now is that um, if you can do a task or project as a for-profit business, probably in most cases you should. Uh, yeah, sometimes, I think so too. Though, sometimes you though have externalities. So something like um uh like uh yeah like very dangerous virus research has the externality of well it could just leak and create a pandemic or uh like various ways of cattle farming have the externality of deforestation etc so then there are oh, questions whether you should approach it with that way but like okay, market are, markets are great but markets aren't designed for markets have their uh issues sometimes and usually it's externalities or that some people can't participate Anyhow, so if you can solve it via markets, solve it via markets, then if you can't solve it via markets, usually that's where the government is meant to step in. So that's why we're currently discussing things like a carbon tax or why like social welfare programs exist as well. It's like the government saying, hey, markets don't sufficiently work for the poorest people in our society. They can't really contribute with their capital or their labor. So therefore, we will kind of take away from there and give it there. So that's where the government usually steps in um, or because of other issues. But sometimes markets aren't designed for it. The government is blind to the issue. And I think that's where philanthropy is, should be stepping in. Um, and that, I believe, applied at the time for um, AI safety research and for pandemic prevention work, as well as for depopulation research. Um, Climate change was for a while a very good nonprofit uh, thing, and I think there are still a ton of opportunities. But actually, climate change is now slowly becoming a valuable for-profit pursuit as well, right? Where you can oh, have cool. uh, you can have uh, de de decarbonization uh, efforts of various size as a for-profit business, uh, even though that's kind of still like in between. Does it really work as a for-profit? It's unclear because. There is uncertainty of whether you can have carbon capture work that well. And there is also um, the timeline is so long. For-profit businesses don't like having the profit be in 30 years, right? Or, or in 20. They want it to be ideally in 10. And um, non-profits and governments have ideally those longer timelines where they're okay if the benefit happens in 20 years. That's sure. usually one factor. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, actually, you answered something I've been wondering about, which is where does nonprofit even benefit or 
makes sense to apply in comparison to profit because a big thing that I, that seemed to be the case is that you know if you give too much and help too much in a certain way people become dependent on it and it actually does more harm mm -hmm. than good even though it has good meaning uh, and it's actually better to get people to be independent in a lot of situations rather than get them to have short-term help uh, but that's yeah. yeah I did not know that about uh, that well do you see any role in uh, poker players especially or like the whole concept of poker playing in this I I mean do you think there's like a major role for poker players in uh, in rational effective giving or do you think uh, it's better suited for like the academics and these guys that uh, are running what was it uh, um, effective altruism because I heard actually there's some issues with that too it was fun of tons of it issues seems like yeah, yeah, yeah so one I think um, poker players are their minds usually are very well designed to solve all sorts of difficult problems. Uh, so theoretically, they're, I think, uh, or we are uh, <laughs> pretty well suited for variety of tasks because we can think against the grain. Uh, that's kind of how we actually we train our mind to be. And also we're training our mind to have a psychological element. So that's good for dealing with people, etc. Uh, I think there's a lot of potential. The difficulty for most poker players is, can you work for someone else? Because we're all used to working for ourselves, right? And uh, can you do something you might not enjoy that much for three months in a row or even 12 months in a row? Because sometimes doing a project requires doing a relatively boring task for a long time. So those are two okay. questions. It's like discipline and working for someone else, lose loss of authority. Um, and then one needs to decide it. But otherwise, I think the minds are very well fit and still among the most kind of like the best problem solvers, um, I think, that I've met. And then uh, on EA, yeah, EA has pretty similar minds in many ways, and uh, uh, but it's definitely more conformist than poker players are. Really? But also, EA had a bunch of other issues. Like, I mean, obviously, the whole thing around SBF happened. Even though my take there is that, um, I mean, one definitely EA like pushed him as well, but he was also pushed by the whole world, really. <laughs> Like the guy was the darling of the U.S. and of every like published paper for like the year 22 and 21. He was like described as the next trillionaire. Sequoia wrote this article where they basically went down on their knees and, you know, <laughs> to him. Uh, there, there was just a lot of a lot of hype. And uh, the other point I would make around that is it's like, okay, it's kind of weird. That's it's going to be pretty controversial, but I think it's pretty damn weird that there is an area which has historically been seen as too do-goodery or like just like, oh, it's all these people trying to do good things. No scandals or like very tiny. The scandals are like, hey, this guy has inappropriately addressed some person or they have sex parties or whatever. You know, those are the types of scandals. That's EA. And then there is an area that is crypto where there are frauds happening like... Every month, there are many, many massive companies, massive billionaires that turned out to have done uh, illegal, t illegal things all the time. It's just like the name of the game, not the name of the game, but one of the names of the game. And now one guy from here goes here and does a bad thing. And then these people are all like, this is where the bad came from. It's like, really? What the fuck? How did you do this sleight of hand? I don't even quite understand. <laughs> because he claimed... 
he would in the end give it all away. It's like he's donated a hundred million or so out of a net worth that self-reported was between 10 billion and 100 billion at different times. So because he donated between 0.1 and 1%, um, these guys are at fault for his creation where he even beforehand while he worked at Jane Street in between, which is kind of like a middle zone, right? It's um, uh, a trade, trading company, uh, hedge fund. Uh, anyway, so there he didn't do fraud as far as we know. And then he went to crypto and started doing fraud. So there is an aspect of his mind having been bred to be the type that uh, would do bad things for sure. And EA has a part in that to play without a doubt due to the like naive utilitarian focus sometimes and the quantification focus, etc. But then the environment is also responsible a little bit. Like he didn't do bad, he didn't do fraud in Jane Street. As far as we know, he didn't. As far as we know, he didn't do it before. And then he starts doing it in crypto. It's like, can we make it such that crypto doesn't allow for frauds to occur as easily? Um, not via centralization or something. I'm not suggesting that, but anyhow. Yeah, that was one of the things. But EA definitely has a role to play around SBF, 100%. And they have been like doing a lot of soul searching. I think it may be best for EA to kind of change quite a bit. Um, and I think EA has done a mistake that has also led in part to SBF, which is EA has assumed that it is now an answer to all sorts of things in life, like all sorts of problems. But in fact, it is not a framework that applies to whether um, going out and doing like gay rights protests in the past were a valuable thing to do or not. Like EA just doesn't have a framework for it. It's not good at answering those right. questions. That does make sense to me. That is it, kind of the. Not, uh, yeah. it is, also, kind of the EA shouldn't be applied in your daily life. Like you, you like, are you gonna treat your loved one that you're with and just like quantify every interaction you have with them and try <laughs> to find the best bang for your for for your like time spent, like directionally maybe? But are you gonna quantify it? No, you, fucking weirdo, stop it. <laughs> just human it up a little bit. <laughs> Anyway, so um, I think, um, yeah, I think EA has kind of overstepped quite a bit. And that in part has led to SBF, I think. And it, okay. in either case has overstepped. And I think it should stay probably presently in the domain of the things it's good at, which is quantifying, quantifiable near-term giving, and also identifying problems like pandemics and AI that other people aren't looking at yet. Um. I think that there's a bit of an error in like the logic of EA where, and I think this is one of the biggest issues with utilitarianism is that it doesn't value something like free choice enough. And I had to come around to this conclusion myself. I probably thought a lot like an EA person at some point also, not to mention when you start, like there has something to be said for uh, quantifying every little thing. It begs a question of like, okay, well, you're putting energy into quantifying things, what about this? And mm -hmm. instead of just enjoying things, I'm like, if you're gonna quantify every thing, what's the point of life again? Um, it actually does make sense, in fact, it's in fact more logical that it, it doesn't really make sense to optimize everything. This is in fact less logical than the idea of experiencing things for what they are. And in fact, so the biological organisms going through life as they do, as inefficient or whatever. I mean, there's always more and more efficient is actually more rational than this idea of like attain, attaining some kind of perfection. 
it's like, well, why? Why do that? What if that's not the, the part of the value system? This is also a value system to attain something like perfection, um, which mm -hmm. is one thing I realized. And I was like, oh, that's a kind of crazy thing to realize. Like, it's just something about me that I tend to be recursively self-approving. Uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but not everyone exists like that. And at some point I realized it's actually not really fair for me to impose my value system on other people. I realized like really? they have to decide for themselves what's yeah. really right because what is right, ironically, it's as if like, like from my view, it's as if every organism has to figure that out for itself or, uh, and then and then from there you derive ethics and things like that. It's, it's yeah, I mean, the, go the it, other way. Yeah, the I, I totally agree with you. Though, uh, so free choice can be part of utilitarianism. You have something called preference utilitarianism, where it's just about fulfilling oh, the really? preference of people. And uh, yeah, there's like welfare version of it. There is a preference version of it, uh, because preference is kind of the higher order, better descriptor of it that includes things like meaning instead of happiness. But okay. uh, in either case, you can't really do utilitarianism if with our like relatively puny little minds that we have, right? Like we, we just can't quantify everything. So why even try? It's just better in many ways to say this broadly makes me feel good or um, I believe that these virtues are relevant and I want to foster these virtues in my life or this is a good heuristic. So I think most sure. people live with a mixture between some virtue ethics things, some deontological things, some utilitarian things. When you run a business, you're probably doing more utilitarian stuff for what it's worth. But um, I think also the part that there is no like inherent outside truth that you kind of alluded to, I agree with strongly. Well, on the aspect of what the right ethics is. Uh, currently, if you ask, um, there are surveys sometimes around of philosophy students or PhDs around which of the three main um, uh, directions of uh, ethics they uh, favor and it's basically an even split between those three theories of uh, utilitarianism virtue ethics and deontology um, and yeah we just don't know like we don't know whether the universe is designed in a way which dictates a version of ethics or it doesn't even and i think there are a bunch of questions that follow from that where really everyone needs to make up their own choice i think something some questions like I think, I think you kind of nailed it. It's like people, uh, at some point, that's kind of what people have to figure out somehow. Is to you can influence his choices to some degree, but at the end of the day, it's still people really need to figure out for themselves. You can't totally. force the decision. So that's why with with reg, view. Huh? yeah, and with reg, and uh, I think the good parts of EA, I think what it does is not tell you specifically that is the only thing you have to do, but to, for example, say you're into animal welfare and you want to help uh, and you can help for the same amount of money for like a million dollars, you can save a thousand cows or a million chickens. It's like, well, do you value one cow more or a thousand chickens? Different people will have different answers. And we don't, in fact, have a like truth based answer of like how we should value their experience relative to each other. Probably at one cow versus one chicken, you would rather save the cow. At one cow versus like a billion chickens, you would probably rather save the billion chickens. And stuff in between is just murky. And like we can look at 
how big is their brain size or how many neurons do they have but that's not really a good answer because there are different ratios of pain perceptors does pain even matter or is it more about well-being we just don't know so i think okay. like what we can do is give you the numbers hey you can do this one charity which achieves that much good for that amount of money or this one which achieves this much and now you choose yeah pretty much I more or less agree. I mean, I think you can present all the facts and people can assess, can have the decision to assess based on whatever the facts are or not, or go with whatever their choice. I think, I do think that really free will of sorts, from a certain perspective, I mean, everything is like more or less. One thing I realized is that from a certain perspective, things are more or less inevitable, but there is free will under that. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, they're not exactly inevitable, but the rough conclusions are um because of like the way that uh you can say emotions work whatever it is hmm. but like, we yeah. do you think we also have the sufficient i think we don't have sufficient knowledge to make it actually computable so like even if some things might be deterministic or inevitable it's like no, can we, we find out we're, we're no, kind of too... so. an interesting but thing can... i think it was bostrom who said that it's not that human minds are so incredibly advanced and crazy good and that's why we're building AI, etc. But rather the perspective he gave is um, human minds are the minimum viable thing to create technology in the first place <laughs> that can create AI. We're like Sounds right. barely smart enough to do stuff, you know? So sometimes with these questions of like, oh, can we compute it? It's like, well, we can't. <laughs> But maybe it is computable, just not by us. So we might as well treat it as if it's not. Yeah, uh, it's not for sure. We can't compute it. It just seems as though, like, I mean, your willpower like averages out at some kind of point. If you start pushing yourself in different directions, it averages out, it fizzles out, or whatever. Even with like variability of like x number of things, I mean, people are still going to follow their own same consistencies at the end of the day, mm -hmm. and even develop and relatively. Well, not even a relative thing, but in ways that can be, that kind of work out to some variation of inevitability. It's kind of the same with poker in that, you know, that like there's all kinds of like nonsense that happens in between. But if someone has an edge, it, uh, it happens. Like it, or if someone has the it tendency to evolve. Over time. Uh, right. Huh? It shows up over time. Yeah. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you can look at a lot of different things like that. It appears that that's true. I mean, a lot of, uh, it, it turns out that many people had their, like, or even in history, there's many, like, events that were effectively inevitable, these major events, but there's variability between, such as, like, there was this, uh, you know, people had their various, like, like, India had its own Leonardo, for example, I forget what his name was, but other mm -hmm. sages and other societies had their own, like, you know, world movers at, like, a relatively predictable frequency, interestingly, um, mm -hmm. and many of the historic events were almost like the biggest ones were actually like not really random they just were yeah something like probably the industrial revolution i would imagine just has to happen at some point after you oh, yeah. uh, uh like you don't know whether it's going to happen in those years specifically but once you can capture and move energy and then start building motors etc you'll just at some point develop rather the ideas to use that uh, yes energy yeah. in some way
Yeah, in fact, uh, everyone's industrial revolution was predictable except for Africa's because all the other country, all the other continents basically just totally shafted Africa. It was on course until hmm. basically this happened uh, through uh, the slave trade and all that. I don't know like, a ton about it, but like that was a really interesting thing in history. But maybe, you know, maybe there's some kind of upswing in there somewhere. Huh? Uh, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty fucky thing. Uh, Liv just yeah, released really. a podcast with uh, Magot Wade. They're talking specifically, actually, about kind of the question, why is Africa so poor? Yeah. And she has an interesting lens where she's describing it as, like, the point being that um, they've, they've developed too many regulations and are often, like, too socialistic, where um, basically entrepreneurial spirit just doesn't work for a variety of reasons. Which is a you know, different lens to take than this, we haven't helped them enough, et cetera, thing, you know? Interesting. Um, okay, cool. I've heard, like, kind of the opposite perspective where, like, everyone in Ghana is effectively an entrepreneur. Um, well, yeah, so that's, I don't uh, know. it's, worth, it's worth checking her out. She um, She's from Senegal herself. Uh, it's the Win Win podcast with Lipbury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should check it out at some point. Anyway, I really have to go, but it's been mm -hmm. great having you, Igor, and thank you for all your insights and all these kinds of things.